philosophers will uh, use a term from time to time that uh, some of you may be familiar with. It's defeater beliefs, defeater beliefs. Uh, the idea is that uh, an individual or a people group or a whole culture, uh, there could be a, a set of beliefs in particular to a certain topic uh, such that it, it renders them unable because they believe this one set of things, they are then unable to believe another set of things. Put it this way, because I believe A, that therein automatically rules out B. Okay, so, so you've got a defeater belief going on there. Uh, let me give you an, an example. Um, I'll, I'll, many of us in our culture are, are sort of stuck on, fixated on, this idea. God is loving, therefore I can't believe in any sort of eternal punishment, hell, or judgment. Because God is loving, those things you see can't be true. That's a defeater belief. The idea is that those two things, you can't reconcile them. You can't have both at the same time. Or can you? Or can you? If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd ask you to turn with me to Lamentations chapter 2. We are pressing on in our little series through this little book. Uh, Lamentations chapter 2, that's in the Old Testament, if you're trying to, to find it. Um, again, it's just five chapters. It's uh, not the, the quickest thing to find. Um, if you've got uh, your Old Testament opened and you're trying to search there through it, if you've hit Isaiah, you're close. Move to the right, you'll find Jeremiah, and then you'll hit uh, Lamentations. Those are some major landmarks that uh, might help you there. Uh, Lamentations chapter 2 is where we are this morning. I'm going to read uh, the whole of, uh, of this ancient Hebrew poem, this lament. Lamentations uh, chapter 2. Hear now God's word. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth. Like a garden laid in ruins, his meeting place, the Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. 
He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His word, which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise. Cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Well, let's pray. Lord, we need to not only hear with our ears, but to hear with our hearts. Um, and we know that is really only possible if your Spirit is at work, uh, shining light, um, enabling us to, to hear and to hear truly and deeply. And so we ask now that you, the one who has gathered us here in this place, you, the one who inspire the writer of Lamentations to put down what was written and preserved it all these centuries. We pray that you would speak now to us. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I have thrown at you one set of uh, terms of a philosophical nature, that being the defeater belief. Let me throw another one at you, uh, one that you likely, many of you have heard of, and that is the idea of unintended consequences. Unintended consequences. The, the thought being that uh, the outcome, the results, the consequences of what comes through a, a process is not exactly what was intended. It was not what you know, we had in mind. And sometimes that can be good. And sometimes it can be bad. Here's an example of, 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 of good, aspirin. Aspirin, many of you know that you know, to take aspirin, there are certain good beneficial side effects. It can lessen uh, the frequency of a, of a heart attack, lessen the severity of strokes. Aspirin, there you have a good unintended, side, uh, unintended consequence. But there are bad ones as well. Um, kudzu. Uh, that's one, if you've traveled much in the southeast part of this country. Uh, it was originally brought over, I understand, from the Far East, like a, over a century ago, just as basically ornamental ground cover. What a nice idea. Uh, or, or, and then years after that, it was used by the, I think it was the Corps of Engineers and, and other uh, groups like that to, to, to help ste uh, stem the tide of erosion in earthworks, that was the idea. But if, again, if you've traveled or spent any time in any significant place of, or any place in the southeast, especially out in rural areas, you will see that kudzu has, well, a way of displacing all the native vegetation and then just taking over as much space as you give it. Uh, that's a, another unintended consequence. It can be good. It can be bad. Another thing to, th to think about when it comes to these unintended consequences are the causes, the deeper causes, typically, of, of how that comes about. And one is what I'll call naive ignorance. That is to say, we're, trying, we're, we're moving into an arena that um, is far more complex than we realize. Naive ignorance. There's another reason. Proud arrogance. Because not only are we not aware of the complexity, we are puffed up and proud about our ability to handle a certain problem. And so you end up with these unintended consequences. Well, you can have that in theology too. Unintended consequences. You can mean well by downplaying something and playing up another thing with with the best of intentions, but end up with a real problem. And I, here's the example, and you can see from the title of the message and where we're heading this morning and where I've already alluded to before we read the text, um, when it comes to the topic of hell and uh, eternal punishment and judgment, uh, some will say, look, that again, that is just completely irreconcilable with any concept whatsoever of a loving God. And so because I find that to be irreconcilable, or just because I'm so uncomfortable with it, um, we need to downplay that, and, and maybe even apologize for it. Or perhaps just dismiss it completely, and if it comes up, well, let's just ignore it. Let's just skip over it. Um, can't do that. We can't do that. There will be unintended consequences uh, with, with that. Now, I, I'll grant you, absolutely, there is a danger of overemphasizing 
you know, going, getting unbalanced, skewing what the scriptures actually uh, teach us here, and getting, getting, getting out of sorts there. But, but again, that said, it's not our call to take an exacto knife to the passages of the scriptures that we don't like and that make us uncomfortable. That's not our call either. The fact of the matter is, is that the doctrine of hell is both biblical and vital. It is both biblical and vital. And if we'll just let it speak, if we'll just let it speak, we'll hear its worth. Two things I want to talk about here, looking at Lamentations uh, 2. And in fact, that's really, in many respects, ultimately what Lamentations 2 is about. These two things, the terror of God's wrath and the wonder of his love. The doctrine of hell delivers on both points. The terror of his wrath, I mean, we're like, yeah, I got that. But yes, secondly, and equally so, the wonder of his love. Let's, let's talk about that. Let's look at that just here briefly. The first, the terror of his wrath. Lamentations 2 gives us a glimpse of what we deserve. It gives us a glimpse of what we deserve. It speaks to, it, it alludes to, it sets the tone for uh, everything else that the Bible speaks to as far as eternal enmity is concerned. Let, think with me about the misery from an earthly standpoint on the horizontal level in time and space of what was going on there in the city of Jerusalem. And, 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 and there's a historical reality. This is real, what, what the author is describing here in poetic language. Uh, verse 1, this, this thundercloud that is rolling in and about to take over the, the people. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down, get the imagery here, he has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. Or verses 4 and 5. Get the, the contrast, the flipping of things here. He has bent his bow like an enemy. This is the Lord, the God of Israel, has bent his bow like an enemy, but towards who? With his right hand set like a foe. Towards who? And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. It's another way of referring to Israel. Jerusalem specifically. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Babylon? No. Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. Look, the, the temple was, was crushed. The walls crumbled. The leaders slaughtered. The, the city is burning. The people exiled. And as though, if I can use this expression, as though that wasn't bad enough, traced back, they understood why this is happening. Because the hand that for centuries had stood for them and protected them is now against them. Their greatest friend is now their greatest enemy, the Lord. The Lord is against them. And all of this speaks, the misery of all of that, and his being ultimately behind it, speaks to, alludes to, anticipates the agony of hell itself. Of an eternal enmity. Now keep your thumb there in Lamentations 2. Go with me to Mark. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. Um, I know this may surprise some of you, 
Um, but actually Jesus speaks more about hell than any other person recorded in the Bible. Far and away more so in the Gospels. And one of the places that Jesus speaks of this is in Mark chapter 9. Uh, I'm just going to pick up in verse 47. It's gruesome imagery. In the, in the context of a larger discussion, get what though he says about hell. Verse, Mark 9, verse 47, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What is Jesus speaking of here? Fire. Disintegration that goes on for eternity. The worm not dying, a decomposition that never ends. It's, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's eternal enmity. And, and, and Lamentations 2 is speaking, anticipating. We're getting a glimpse of what we deserve. But not just that, but another, another part of this is the reality of choice in all of this. Um... If you know, I'll just quickly remind you of you know, how we got to where we are in Lamentations in the book of Jeremiah, um, the flow of the events, God's initiative, His sovereign initiative with the people of Israel, calling them out as His own, as His own people, with a, a, His own purposes and plans for the good of the whole world, and their response, we want to live the way we want to live. We're good with the gifts we're good with the blessings, but would you just leave us alone? Uh, summarizing. <laughs> but in essence, that's the response. Now, that is in essence what hell is. Leave us alone. God's leaving us alone. You see... Hell is not so much something God imposes on us, but it's rather something that is chosen by us. You see, already in this life, outside of His intervention, outside of His grace, out of His grabbing hold of a human heart, we're going to be left... We're, our, our nature, our givenness, the trajectory of our hearts and lives is about self. Self-dependence, self-determination self-righteousness, just leave me alone. Or as Paul says in Romans 1, God gives us over to what we want, which is the most terrifying thing that could happen. Now imagine that going out for eternity. And that is hell. That is hell. And that is what Lamentations 2 is pointing toward. It's giving us a glimpse of the terror of God's wrath. Now why is that important? It's important because of the silly caricatures that we have in our minds about what hell is. Sometimes I'm asked, I've been asked this no few times, do you, do you really believe that hell actually is that whole fire and brimstone thing? To which I usually answer, depending on the context and circumstances, well, actually, you know, I really do believe those are metaphors. At which point, oftentimes, the person then responds with this look of relief on their face. Oh, I'm so glad to hear... Whoa, 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 whoa. Those are metaphors 
for something much worse. Hell is getting what we want. Hell is getting what we want for all eternity. Or as C.S. Lewis put in the, his book, The Great Divorce, and the quotes there in your quotes and notes, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. Again, I want to just say this. Hell is, the doctrine of hell is biblical, it is vital, and if we will but hear it, we'll, we'll hear its worth. And it warns us. God is warning us here of His wrath. But He is also assuring us of His love. Now, that seems counterintuitive, but stay with me here. It's the second thing I want to say. Here in Lamentations 2, we get not just a glimpse of the terror of His wrath, but a glimpse of the wonder of His love. You hear this weeping going on. The weeping... Uh, when you get to uh, verse 11... Verses 1 and 10 in Lamentations 2 have basically been the, the, the words of a narrator. By the time you get to verse 11 and going on through, I think it's verse 19, um, it's the word more of a witness. Someone who's there. Not a third party, but somebody there. And their response. Verse 11, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Verse 13, what can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? If you have read through the Bible, or any part of the Bible, maybe the Gospels, who does that sound like? That sounds like the wailing and lamenting and weeping of Jesus centuries later for the same city for Jerusalem. You hear the compassion that's there. The compassion of God Himself. But even beyond that, when you think in terms of what this lament is really about, what this exile is really about, it's meant to prepare us for His lament. For a greater exile. His exile. His being cut off, separated from the Father. And you get hints of that even here. You can hear some of the words of Lamentations 2 upon Jesus' lips. Verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus? From the cross. Verse 22, You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. Why? Why this weeping? Why this lament? Why Jesus? Jesus, why? Because of what He endured. What did He endure? At the cross. For us, this exile, this lament, what does it entail? Well, keeping in mind his relationship with the Father, the Son's relationship with the Father and what it entailed. We're talking here about an eternal, without beginning, intimate, close, beautiful relationship between the Father and the Son. But at the cross, that relationship is severed. There's a separation that takes place there. He is, is thrust into the deepest pit. It's why we hear his groans and weeping, lamenting in the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew what awaited. It wasn't just the physical agony that he dreaded. It was the relational spiritual. He knew more than anyone else what separation from God would mean 
Lamentations 2 points us not just to the terror of God's wrath, but the wonder of his love. Think with me here. If, if, if a casual acquaintance of yours rejects you, spurns you, that stings. If a dear friend rejects you, that hurts a little more. What if your spouse says, I want nothing else to do with you forever. I despise you, I hate you, I'm leaving you. That can undo you. That can be utterly devastating. Why? Because the closer the bond, right? The closer the bond, the worse the rejection. That's what we see going on here at the cross with Christ. You see, with, with the, at the cross we see, and even through Lamentations 2, we're getting a glimpse of what Jesus endured for us. It's not theoretical. It's not philosophical. It's not just some principle. It's personal. It's relational. We see what he endured for us. If I can push a little further, we see also what we owe. We see what we owe. And as we see what we owe, that can inspire wonder. For me, worship. It can ignite within our hearts a greater sense of trust in Him, a greater willingness to, to serve Him, to lay our lives out for him. Again, the doctrine of hell is, is absolutely biblical and absolutely vital if we'll just hear it, we'll see its value. Let me end with this. Going back to the unintended consequences thing. And, and I take you back to the causes. Remember the causes typically are either, or perhaps both, either naive ignorance about the complexity of the issues that we're monkeying with, or proud arrogance about our ability to fix them. When it comes to rejecting hell, I think we see some, some of those two things going on there. Maybe meaning well, but you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're losing. The doctrine of hell is completely biblical. It's, it's really, on the whole, quite clear when you look at the Scriptures. I would even go so far as to say it's also to reject it as unhistorical. That is to say, you're rejecting the, the, the classic, for lack of a better term, classic teachings of the church that go back for centuries. That ought to give us pause before we throw it out. And in throwing it out, there are consequences. You lose things. Give you three. Two quick ones and a little longer third one. We lose our ability to live at peace with each other when you throw this out. Whether at the dinner table or at the UN. Um, think with me, what's going to break? What really will break the cycle of retaliation and vengeance? Oh, no, no, no. You shouldn't talk like that. You know, you know what? Violence just begets violence. Just calm down. When, can you say that to someone who's been wounded, who's been hurt, who's suffered deep injustice. 
Platitudes aren't going to do it. An assurance, though, of the fact that there is a God who one day will make all things right and that therein that frees you to lay down the sword of vengeance and retaliate, that can speak. It enables us to live at peace with each other. It also, it also deepens our sense of human value, of what people are worth, of what you're worth, of what I'm worth, of what we're, anybody is worth. Because as Jesus is hanging upon that cross, he looks at us with laser focus in his eyes and says, even with the nails, looking at you, you, me, you're worth this. So it helps us to live at peace with each other. We see the worth of a human person, but here's the last one, and I alluded to it already. It assures us of his love. What did it cost him? What did he endure to bring you near? Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, Tim Keller put me onto this story. Martin Lloyd-Jones, though, the great preacher from uh, Westminster Abbey, um, so many years ago, most of the so many years, decades of the 20th century, great preacher um, used to use this story to make this point. A friend comes to you and says, "I was at your house the other day, and this guy came by. A bill was due. You weren't there, so I paid it." How would you respond? Well, see, here's the thing: you don't know how to respond because you don't know how much the bill was, right? You have to know how much the bill was in order to know how to respond. Was it just postage due, a few cents? Or was it years of back taxes? Makes a world difference. Lloyd-Jones sums it up this way. Unless I know how much he paid, I don't know whether to shake his hand or fall down on the ground and kiss his feet. Do you see? Do you see what your Lord, our Lord, what Jesus has endured, what He has paid? Everything. He has suffered. He has paid an immeasurable debt. And you know what that tells us? His love is an immeasurable love. I know this sounds counterintuitive, but the doctrine of hell, rightly understood, is good news. It's good news. For there we see how much Jesus loves us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are just and holy, and good, and merciful, and gracious, and kind. We pray that you'd help us to hear it all. To hear it all. We need it all. And at the cross we see it all. Your mercy and your justice kissing. We see your character, your ways woven all through history, all through your word. And we thank you. And we thank you for this celebration here at the table that points to these very things as well. In your name we pray. Amen.